it was one year ago, this month, that we began our journey through Matthew's Gospel. Actually, it was 53 weeks at this point, a year, I mean, a year and a week, and we've made it to chapter 9. Yay, I know. I'm excited. I really was. I was excited because, to be honest with you, Miss Beverly, my big fear going into this was that I'd say, okay, we're going to preach through Matthew's Gospel, and it would last like two months because I, you know, we would just blur through it and miss so much because of my weakness. And um, God is blessed. Um, I want to thank all of you for the privilege. quiet. I want to thank all of you for the uh, privilege to study through this book with you. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness to be here through the process. Uh, I know it's probably been bumpy at times. I appreciate you, uh, appreciate you praying for me. Keep on. Uh, as we go through this, but but I know that I know that I've grown through this. Uh, I know there's been so many times that um, you know I'll, I'll be preparing a sermon, and uh, I think through this because we decided we're going to march through this book, it's kind of forced me to study past what what I kind of already know. You know, sometimes you, we read the Bible and we we do our own devotion time, and we. You know, you have those verses that you've already underlined in your Bible and you kind of already are kind of reading to get to those verses, you know what I mean? Because those are ones that have spoken to you in the past, so that's kind of where you're already looking to. Things like that, that you know, going through uh, a book of the Bible this way kind of forces us to unpack every verse and every word and every thought and every concept. So I know I've grown through it, I've been convicted through it, and I hope that um, as we keep walking through it, uh, that you and I both will continue to grow. So tonight, uh, as we continue our path, uh, we're going to begin with Matthew's own account of his call to follow Christ. We've been going over a year, and now we get Matthew's account of when he started following Christ. I think, I think it's, that's, that's almost like God just planned that out to me. It seems almost, you know, like he put it on a calendar that way. So... Um, we begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, which says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now if you look in the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke refer to Matthew not by the name Matthew, they refer to him as Levi. Um, and some people have had some consternation over why, you know, it's Matthew in, in one gospel and Levi in the other. Are these the same guys? And stuff? Yes, they're the same people. The reason, there's many times that, especially Jesus' disciples are known by multiple names. You know, Peter was also known as Simon, you know, so. Um, but here, um, there's a, there's a very interesting reason, I think, that Matthew refers to himself as Matthew while the others refer to him as Levi. You see, uh, Levi, was Matthew's name in Hebrew. And Mark and Luke, who were writing, as we said before, to a more Greek crowd, they used the name Levi because that was his Jewish name, and they're keeping the context that Jesus was a Jew, and he was in the land of the Jews, in the land nation of Israel, and he was calling Jewish disciples. Uh, Matthew, though, as we've said so many times before, was writing to the Jews. But instead of calling himself by his Hebrew name, he does the odd thing, and he goes with the name Matthew, which is his name in Greek. He goes with his Greek name. And the reason he does this, as he addresses a Jewish crowd, 
is because I believe he wants to give us a glimpse into maybe his own humility. Um, as we just read, Matthew was a tax collector. And as we've said before, tax collectors were, of course, hated by the Jews because they were dishonest. Uh, what Matthew is pointing out as he calls himself Matthew and as he relates this his own personal call here, what's he, what he's pointing out to his audience is that he was not just a tax collector. He's letting everybody that knew the context of this verse know that he was the most hated kind of tax collector. There was within the Roman government an infrastructure of what we'll call tax gatherers. Um, so many times in, in our English language, we use the terms tax collector and publican and things like that interchangeably. But that's really kind of wrong. That's not really what we ought to do. That's almost misleading. Um, the true publicans with the exception of Zacchaeus, as far as we know, were always Gentiles. Uh, publicans were responsible for collecting taxes not within a certain city. They were responsible for collecting taxes within a certain region. It was, it was a very big job. Um, and they would also bid out for these jobs sometimes. They would go to the Roman government and they would compete for this position. And the reason it was so highly sought after is because once you got this position, it was just understood by the Roman government that you would keep a portion of what you charged everybody as your fee. Now, it wasn't really nailed down in stone what your portion would be. Might be 2%, might be 25%, might be 50%. So Rome was going to get its money and then whatever above that this publican wanted to charge, he would charge. And by the way, he had the force of the Roman government behind him. So if you didn't pay, you went to jail. So you had to pay. Now, uh, in order to see his massive job performed of taxing an entire region, these publicans would subcontract local citizens from each town to help them collect the taxes. And these men that were subcontracted out, they were broken out into two groups. You have the Gabai, which were uh, tax gatherers in general, and you had the mocks. Matthew was the latter. He was a mock, and he was of the most despised group. All tax collectors, like we said, from the publicans on down, they were really nothing more than government-backed extortioners. They were a Roman government-backed mob or mafia. You couldn't tell them no, and they charged you whatever they wanted. However, the Gabai collected on only regular dues of land, income, and poll taxes. The mocks were much more invasive with their collections. Men like Matthew would set up their booths on public roads, in the city gates, or seaside ports, and they would, all throughout the day, make travelers unload their wagons or unload their ships, open up all their parcels, and even open their own personal mail. And they would inspect all these things for any evidence of any business that might be occurring that they could apply a tax to. Then the mocks would tax the people on everything, including licenses, wagons, the very axles on the wagons, pack animals, uh, ships, river crossings, crossings of dams, the right to walk down the road. 
In fact, they taxed the people on so many varied things that modern scholars don't even have words for many of the things that are found in the ancient writings that would be taxed. They just don't know. There's so many things. There's words popping up that they just don't know what to relate these words to. Literally everything could be taxed by a mock as you travel throughout the day. Now, because the publicans taxed the people, but they did it through other men, they were hated, they just weren't hated as much. They taxed you, they just never taxed you face to face. So you didn't despise them quite as much. The Gabai were more hated than the publicans because they, packed, they taxed you face to face, but they only taxed you on certain things, so they didn't extort as much money from you. However, the mocks were the most hated because they did their extorting in person and the scope of their extortion seemed to have no limits. Matthew, like we said, was a mock. And we know this because we even in this text we see that as Jesus passed by, he wasn't sitting in a tax house like the Gabai would have been. He was sitting at a tax booth. Matthew would have been so hated by his countrymen that he fell under the rabbinical ban found in the Talmud, which states that tax collectors were considered evil and not allowed to serve as judges or even give testimony in the Jewish courts. There was literally a legal ban against tax collectors to the Jewish people. So Matthew was a Jew that was, in the eyes of his countrymen, despised and even cut off from God. In a religious system of merit-based righteousness, Matthew was not only lost, he was seen as lost and considered to be technically beyond any way or any hope of salvation. So that's the context that we have here. Matthew refers to himself by his Greek name because he wants his Jewish audience to stay in touch with the truth of what he was in the eyes of all of Israel as he tells of Christ's work in his life. Just like Paul called himself the chief of sinners, Matthew is reminding all the men of Israel that he was the same. And if Jesus could or would save him, then no one is beyond the mercy of God. There's the importance of context right there. So we see that Jesus did, in fact, extend this mercy to Matthew. Jesus said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. This is a perfect picture of what we call irresistible grace. The irresistible grace of God moved in this moment in the life of Matthew. Matthew, because of his way of earning a living, he was always very in tune with all the goings-on within the community and within the society that he lived in. Nothing could get by him because if anything went on without him knowing it, he might miss a dollar he could tax somebody for. So he knew everything that was going on. Um, he would have definitely known about Jesus. He would have known about his miracles. He would have known about his teachings. He most likely would have heard him speak maybe even several times. Um, it's not a far stretch to believe that he had heard what we refer to as the general call. The call of the gospel that goes out to all men. We believe he probably heard that several times before this day. However, on this day, he responded and followed Jesus because of the effectual call that he received as the Holy Spirit did his work in regenerating his heart. All those whom the Lord Jesus died to save will come to him. Period, paragraph. Biblically sound. Jesus makes it clear in John 6. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Not might come to me, 
Not should come to me. They will come to me. However, irresistible grace, it doesn't mean that we cannot resist God's grace at all. It doesn't mean that we can't resist it for a time. It means that in the end, God's grace is just going to win out in the hearts of the people that God has chosen to save through the blood of His Son. Jesus will have every single soul that He spilled His blood for. He's going to have everybody that He bought and paid for. It would be unjust of the Father to not ensure that the Son get every soul that He went to purchase. He came to save a people. He did everything that it was required of Him to do. He's going to get all of His people. Some will come later. later. Some will come sooner. Uh, When we receive the effectual call, it may seem gentle or it may seem very violent. You know, our hearts may be strangely warmed like Wesley talked about. He was sitting and listening to, I believe it was Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter 1, I think if I'm correct. And he felt his heart strangely warmed. The effectual call was a gentle call to him in that moment. Or, our heart may be violently stabbed with a killing blow, like the men of Acts chapter 2, who screamed out, Brothers, what must we do to be saved? Either way, when the Spirit of God applies His grace to our lives by giving us faith, the call of Christ becomes one that we can no longer resist. It's not that God drags you against your will in that moment. He changes your will in that moment. He makes you alive and for the first time ever you see things in a way that you never really saw it before. You might have heard it that way before. You might have understood it that way before. But you did not truly with the eyes of your heart see it that way before. We may have harden our hearts in the past because we would rather have our tax booths of lust and pride or selfishness or addictions or materialism or hobbies or whatever else. But when God applies His grace to our hearts, we will answer the call. We will have open eyes to see Jesus as not just a teacher, not just a prophet, not even just a Bible character anymore, but as our King who commands us to follow. And in that moment, we will obey. There's so many, especially in our area, who sit on two opposite poles concerning God's grace. Um, obviously, there are many people who, you know, are, are into or are influenced by what we would call, I guess, cultural Christianity. They're around it. They've been around it their whole life. Everybody in Mines, Mississippi, knows what Easter's about. Everybody's been to a VBS. Everybody uh, knows about the cross and all that kind of stuff. But they turn God's grace into licentiousness. And they live their lives however they want to without ever really thinking that they need to repent of anything. We all know people like that. We may be related to people like that. However, there are many who feel like Matthew must have felt. You know, if you look around right now and you see all the pews that are empty, I just want to pose an idea to you I was thinking about the other day. Every empty seat in here, that seat belongs to somebody. Not like we usually think about it in church where, oh, you've got my pew, you've got to get up. No, what I mean is, is that there are lost people. I guarantee you, if I went outside the front door and I just started talking even in my regular voice, which to be honest is louder than most people's, 
But if I went out the door and just started talking in my regular voice within earshot of what would be said, there are people that should be sitting in those seats. They need to be in those seats. Christ deserves that they be in those seats. But for one reason or another, they're not. Maybe they've never really had any kind of real meaningful interaction with the church. Maybe they just had a rough life and they feel like God just wouldn't accept them. Maybe they've just always been distant from the things of God and God's people in any meaningful way. And they feel like God just wouldn't accept them at this point in life. Or maybe they have been in church their whole life. But they've abused God's grace or they've become wayward and now they feel that they are beyond saving. People from both groups might have done some of the things that everyone knows is contrary to proper religious practice. And what I mean by that is they may have been the people who have had an abortion. They may have been drug addicts. They may have slept around. They may have been a drunkard or uh, practiced any kind of evil. They may have treated their spouse poorly or even divorced their spouse or anything like this. Or perhaps they haven't. Perhaps they have simply lived for years just ignoring God. And they've realized the offense that God takes at this. Maybe someone here in this right now, either here or over an electronic media, is sitting there thinking that God will not forgive them. That He would not call them at this point in life. And what God is saying through Matthew's own testimony to all of us is that if that's you, you're wrong. He will. In fact, He might be doing it right now. Prayerfully, maybe someone here, maybe someone who will hear this, God will call their heart with the effectual call right now. Jesus called Matthew when he was the most despised and most condemned sinner around. And because of the effectual call, Matthew followed him. He left everything without regret. Matthew knew that once he just abandoned his government-backed tax booth, in the middle of the day like this, that he could never go back. There was no way any publican, there was no way that government was ever going to allow him to fill that position again. He knew that. However, this man, who had most likely spent so much of his life feeling condemned and wanting forgiveness that he didn't think was really possible for him, when he heard the call of Jesus, he left the booth of his sin without regret. And when we see the depths of our lostness, then the things that we have lived for, the things that we have put, uh, the things that have put us in such a terrifying situation before God, they really start to lose their appeal. We see that they'll not only mean nothing to us in eternity, we see that they are costing us eternity. If, if God's moved on your heart in that way, you know what I'm talking about. You know that moment or that season in life where all of a sudden all the things that you had been living for or the things that you had been hiding in the dark or the things that you had really, the things you really ran to when the pressure was on other than Christ, the things that really offended God in your life, all of a sudden you remember when you saw what they really were costing you. That they were going to cost you an eternity under the wrath of God. That they were costing you the relationship with the one whom you were created to know. That they were not only not as beneficial as you thought they were, they were the most harmful things you'd ever 
been in contact with, and I'm sure you remember that you wish you had never associated with yourself with those things ever at all. You wish you'd never touched them. You wish you'd never seen them. You wish you'd never heard of them. The things you once loved and didn't think you could make a day or a week without, now you wish you had never heard of them. In fact, when we're in that moment, when we're in that season, when God's doing that to us, when He's opened our eyes in that way, all we want are not those idols anymore. All we want is someone to rescue us. Then, in Jesus, we see our only hope of salvation. God, in that moment, or at that time, shows us Christ. He walks by, so to speak. He comes to mind. God opens our heart to see Him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. He's our only hope of salvation. We've seen that we're like Matthew. We're totally lost. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are just eternally toast. And there's no reason God should or would ever have anything but anger for us now. And then we see Christ and we say, oh, there's a glimmer of hope. If only He will save me. In Christ, in that moment, we see everything we could possibly want. Everything that matters to us really right then is in Him. Salvation, forgiveness, acceptance, escape from wrath, justification. Oh, and then it just opens up from there, doesn't it? Wait a minute, perfect love. Joy. Wisdom I never thought about. Hey, here's one that can tell me. I realize my whole life I've done everything like Matthew. I've tried to figure out every move I could make by my own intellect and by my own wisdom. And I've done the things that even though I knew they were kind of wrong, I thought they would ultimately end up with, in the greater good for me. And all that's done is come back to bite me and destroy me and ruin everything that I care about. And now here's this one who never made a mistake. He can only speak truth. Every one of his ways is above all of my ways. None of his ways could ever fail. And he's willing to teach me. Everything we could possibly want is in him. And that's to say nothing of the fact that he's the source of all joy that will never diminish. We'll never retire from Jesus and he'll never retire from us. We'll have eternity with him, not just 25 years and then we get a gold watch and we're on our own to figure out the rest of our existence. He loves us eternally. He wants to give us a place where there is no more fear, where there is no more pain, where there is no more doubt, where there is no more lack of assurance, where there is no more depression or despair or despondency or anything like that and all of this and so much more wrapped up in just the person who's walking by us Christ Jesus in that moment of our greatest heaviness and our greatest despair and he says follow me and in our awe of how could this be? I don't know about you but I remember in that season of my life I remember thinking I mean I part I remember struggling my way to the cross to really accept the grace of God because my sin was so dark, so bad, so much worse than all of yours put together as far as I was concerned. And I remember thinking, will he really? It's not a matter, it wasn't a matter of, was, is he enough? It was the question of, is he really willing to save somebody like me? But all throughout Scripture, what does He say to every one of us? Follow me. Repent and believe the Gospel. You follow me. But I'm a sinner. Follow me. 
I've done so many bad things. Follow me. I've been on the wrong road my whole life. That's why you need to follow me. And when he calls us in that moment and we grasp that he's really speaking to us and he really is opening the door of salvation and relationship with him to us, when that effectual call really draws our heart that way, then we respond like Matthew did. And we respond like Paul did when he wrote, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Matthew left his tax booth and he never looked back. Paul left his life as an ascending young Pharisee, a, a man on his way to prominence, and he never looked back. We've left our, Those of us that are in Christ, we've left the sins that owned us and we fight to never look back. Because the one who's called us is greater than all those things. And immediately after Matthew's conversion, we read in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, here, presumably, Matthew held a party at his house to honor Jesus. And in this, we see, first of all, our Lord's willingness to go to sinners of the worst kind, as well as Matthew's new desire to bring such sinners to Christ. And this is the call of every disciple, to go and seek out the lost and see them reconciled to our new master. Jesus does not shun such sinners. Rather, he seeks them out and he calls his disciples to do the same. The entire crowd here was made up of tax collectors and other people whom the rest of Israel would have simply labeled as sinners. No other label was needed. To the, to the religious mind of Israel at that time, that label was good enough. That label placed these people exactly where they were. Sinners beyond hope of righteousness. These were most likely Matthew's friends and acquaintances. They were the people that the religious rulers of Israel would have said were beyond salvation. But in fact, salvation came to eat with them. So that they might hear the gospel, believe, repent, and be saved. Now, this action alone would draw the ire of the religious rulers of that area. Not only did Jesus fellowship with these religious rejects, but he did so while excluding the Pharisees. These men saw themselves as the standard bearers of righteousness. And in their minds, since Jesus was doing mighty works which surely meant he was from God, and claiming to be from God, he should have desired to rub elbows with who? Them. The fact that he not only rebuked them in the few verses before publicly, but also consorted with the people that the Pharisees pronounced as spiritually beyond repair, that made them furious. They couldn't figure it out. They would not accept it. They raged at this perceived insult. And we see there's a disdain in verse 11. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now apparently the Pharisees found out that Jesus was going to be at this party and they waited outside. They didn't go inside. And obviously they didn't go inside because there were sinners in there. And these men would never associate with those people. 
They thought it made them unclean. They waited outside. There's another reason they waited outside. They were too afraid to question Jesus about this matter face to face. He had just rebuked their evil thoughts and then healed the paralytic in the eyes of all the witnesses in verses 1 through 8. They didn't want a face-to-face confrontation with Jesus because they were intimidated. They couldn't suffer another personal embarrassment or public embarrassment. So they cornered, not Jesus, they cornered some of His disciples. They were going to pick on little brother, so to speak. And they asked them, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this was not an honest question. This isn't really something they wanted to know. In their minds, the fact that Jesus would associate with this group was automatically a sin on the part of Jesus. It made him equal with the people he was eating with in their minds. As time would go on, uh, the Pharisees would often ask questions of Jesus trying to pin him down to some kind of guilt. Um, this incident that we're talking about tonight is most likely when Jesus began to be slandered as he would point out in Matthew eleven nineteen, where he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They labeled Jesus as being one of the people that he's associating here at Matthew's house because of this incident. But in this question, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus before his disciples. They were basically saying, your master is obviously a sinner because he is socializing and associating with sinners. What do you have to say about that? Then in verses 12 and 13, it says, but when he heard it, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think it must have been pretty embarrassing for the Pharisees who had confronted the disciples because they were too scared to confront Jesus face to face in front of other people, to have Jesus overhear their conversation, recognize what's going on, and go to them and confront them over this issue. Have you ever heard somebody in a, in a, in a, a crowd where they're kind of talking about somebody, but they're almost talking about them in third person? Like the other person is standing right here, and they're saying, oh, she doesn't, she doesn't know who she's talking to. She don't know me. Heard somebody do that? I see kids at school do that all the time. I want to go up and like, she's right there. Why don't you turn to her and say, You must not understand who you're conversing with, young lady. You must not have an acknowledgement of who I am. Of course, I realized that if they did that, the conversation would probably be over. They'd go home and be trying to figure out, what what do you mean? But that's okay. Kyle's going to teach him up. But it must have been embarrassing for these tax, I mean, for these Pharisees to have Jesus walk up and confront them and really expose how scared they were to talk to Him. And as He confronts them, Jesus uses three points of reasoning. First of all, He uses simple logic. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You know, Jesus just turns the obvious truth of the Pharisees' own assertion back on them to expose their hypocrisy in this matter. The Pharisees' whole argument was that because these people were sinners, 
No one should have anything to do with them. That was their whole point. These people are sinners. You should never have anything to do with them. And Jesus turns this around, pointing out that it is because they are sinners that they should be helped. How ridiculous would it be for a physician to only take patients who had no physical illness whatsoever? You go to school all those years, you pay all that money in loans, you get this great understanding of the human body, you're able to heal, you take an oath to heal, that's your business to heal those who are sick. But instead of doing that, you set standards on your life where you will only see people who have nothing to heal. That is both useless and illogical. Not only did the Pharisees know that these people were sinners, these people themselves knew that they were sinners. They never denied it. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drunks, and anyone else in this group, they knew they were spiritually ill and in great need of someone to heal them. Jesus' point to the Pharisees is this. You knew they were sick. Why didn't you do something to see them healed? He turns it on them. He pointed out that those who claim to be the shepherds of Israel, instead of tending the sick and wounded of the flock, had decided to simply sit back on the hillside and watch the sheep die. The question we have to ask here is, do we do the same thing? Do we have the attitude that if someone is known as a sinful person, we will not have anything to do with them? We have to do some soul searching here. I'll be honest with you, I had to look at my own life. Because I think it's, it's easy to get that attitude sometimes, especially in a place where everybody knows everybody. Because we kind of compartmentalize everybody into groups, don't we? It's almost like one big junior high around here. you got cliques, right? The party crowd hangs out with the party crowd. The cowboys hang out with the cowboys or whatever. The Saints fans hang out with Kyle. That's, yeah, that's right. Kyle's by himself most of the time. Anyway, so... You know, I mean, everybody kind of, we compartmentalize and it's almost like we don't really cross those boundaries too much unless it's, you know, we see them at a gas station and they happen to be working there. So we have to give them our five dollars so we can buy, you know, whatever we're buying or whatever. I mean, that's but that's not that doesn't really count, does it? That's not really crossing the boundaries. Do we have the attitude that if someone is known as a sinful person, we're not going to have anything to do with them? If we do, how are they, if we do have that attitude, how are they ever going to be healed? How are they ever going to hear the gospel and be changed if the church doesn't go to them? And, and we excuse ourselves from associating with the world saying things like, I don't want to give the appearance of evil. Let me challenge you with this. How much more of an appearance of evil could we be giving than to see the spiritually sick all around us and just leave them to die? That's the appearance of evil because that is evil. To not associate with the world so that they would be healed is great wickedness. Maybe we sometimes think that if we associate with sinners, we're not upholding the moral standard that we should. I think we think that because so many have a misconception about what Jesus was doing when he was around these sinners. It, it, it's always kind of astounded me. I think most people seem to think that Jesus was hanging out at Matthew's house and he was just relaxing, you know, just kind of showering these people with acceptance and affirmation. I think people in church a lot of times they get the idea that, you know, Jesus is just kind of 
He's hanging out there quoting John 3.16 but never mentioning anything about sin or judgment or anything like that. I think people get that idea a lot of times. I'm here to tell you, these people did not change Jesus, not one I owe. He was the same regardless of who He was talking to. He was the same in essence anyway. Jesus was the same man with everyone. When He spoke, He spoke truth. One example might be the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He loved her, but He loved her as He was confronting her immorality. And He did the same with everyone. And that's kind of our model. We should, we should interact with the world on our jobs, different opportunities that we have. When we hold a feast, we should invite those who no one else would invite. The poor, the lame, the sick, those who can't pay us back. Well, who's more poor and lame and sick than the lost people of this world who are totally broken and totally depraved and do not even know how broken they are? Who should we be inviting to our houses for our get-togethers, our socializations? It's the people that need what we have the most, right? We need to invite people that we can give to and they have nothing at that moment to really pay back. If you're the one with the gospel in your heart and someone else isn't, you have everything to give them. They have nothing to give you. Secondly, Jesus confronted the Pharisees with Scripture. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now the phrase go and learn was a rabbinical term and it meant that someone didn't know enough to even enter into a conversation about a topic. That was a massive slam in the face of these Pharisees. What Jesus is basically saying is, look, you don't know enough to even talk about this with me. Jesus was rebuking these men for a total lack of understanding concerning the Scriptures that they prided themselves on having mastered. This quote comes from Hosea 6, verse 6. And Jesus quoted Hosea to these people to remind the Pharisees of the context of Hosea's love and mercy and faithfulness for Gomer, his adulterous wife. And they all knew that this was a picture of unfaithful Israel and God's faithfulness and compassion. This was a clear picture that God was interested in showing mercy to the adulterous, the sinners who knew they needed mercy and not those who saw themselves as already faithful. In using this reference to Israel's adultery, he was reminding these men of their own unfaithfulness. And in Hosea 6.6, 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God means that He has no desire for those who would see themselves as righteous because of their keeping of some religious code. Instead, He desires to show mercy to sinners who know they need mercy. The self-righteous don't think they need mercy, so they will not love God for being merciful to them. The self-aware sinner knows he needs forgiveness, and when he receives it, he'll be thankful. He will love the Lord who forgives him of much. None of the ritualistic religious practices of the law ever pleased God when it wasn't offered out of a sincere heart. God was never pleased with the offering of the blood of bulls and goats and things like that if it didn't come out of a sincere heart. Sacrifices only pleased God when they were offered contritely. 
He says to Israel in Jeremiah 7, 22 and 23, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. When Israel offered ritualistic religion to God, but not their hearts to God. He said in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. God does not delight in hollow religion. He wants us to know Him. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. Those who come to God repent because they know their sin. Those who come to God and repent because they know their sin and their need for forgiveness will have compassion and mercy given to them every time. Then they will have mercy on other sinners. Isn't that right? When we know we've been forgiven, we're able to forgive others because we're really in tune with how much we need forgiveness. Those who have no mercy to give others will receive none from God because this is a sign that they have never really sorrowed over their own sin. If you see somebody who's hard-hearted toward sinners, other people, they think that they're self-righteous, they think they're better than other people, you see somebody who either has never sorrowed over their sin and never come to repentance and they know not God, or they've allowed themselves to become blind to their own sin, they've forgotten that they're Sins have been forgiven. They've forgotten how much mercy they need. They've become hard-hearted and they're not close to God in that moment. One of the two. Those who will not extend mercy will not receive mercy because they have never felt the need for it personally. And that is why they will not give it to others. These Pharisees did not offer sacrifices out of a sense of needing forgiveness because they thought that their religious rituals made them righteous already. They didn't think they needed forgiveness because their religious activity made them righteous. This made any mercy that they would have received from God compulsory, meaning God owed it to them. They thought that because they did this, that, and the other in the law, they were already legally righteous in the eyes of God. So if God gave them mercy, it's because He owed them mercy. Like a wage. Like in a contract. They had God over a barrel. you got to give me mercy. you got to give me forgiveness. you got to do this because I did this, this, and this. The problem is that mercy that is deserved... That's not mercy. That's justice. When you get what you deserve, that's justice. Most of the time we think of that in a negative context, and usually it is. If, if you break the law and you commit a crime and you go to jail, that's justice. But also, how about this? If I work my 40 hours plus a ton over there at the school, and I do my job, and they give me my paycheck, they're not being benevolent to me, are they? That's not charity. That's justice. That's what they owe me, right? If we put ourselves in such a place as these Pharisees did, where we can only know the justice of God, 
Where we believe that we've earned the mercy of God, we've earned the forgiveness, we've earned the acceptance of God. So when God gives those things to us, it's not really mercy, it's justice. Then we cannot really know the Lord because we, can, we cannot know Him in His steadfast love and mercy. We only get to know half of it. We only know His justice side, not His mercy side. If, G, excuse me, if justice is the only part of Him that we wish to know, then that will be the only part of Him that we will ever know. All we will ever receive from God is justice in the form of judgment. And that's where these Pharisees were. The question is, how easy is it to be self-righteous? Especially after we've been in the faith for a while. Think about, those of you that have been born again at maybe a longer time than others, think about it. Have you ever, have you gone through that cycle? Do you remember that cycle? When we first come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, we are very merciful with other people. Why? Because our, the greatest failings of our life are still so fresh on us, right? We remember the, like Brother Tony was talking about this morning, those, those restless nights where you're up in cold sweats because you're afraid to go to sleep because you know your sin will condemn you to hell. The heat of God's wrath is, is almost breathing down your neck. You feel it. You feel the weight of your lostness all the time, every second of your day. And then when you are forgiven, and maybe even you're still coming to terms with how forgiven you really are, you're very sympathetic with other people because you are very in tune with your own depravity. But then what happens after we've been born again a while? What happens after we've settled with the idea that God has forgiven us, that He is merciful, that we are in Christ? After a while, we can begin to be hardened by pride, can't we? It becomes so easy to forget the desperate sense of need that we once had before God. We can settle into thinking that while we are not yet perfect, we're doing pretty good. Or this is really the understanding we have in our hearts. I'm living good enough. We would never really say that, but we feel that way, don't we? We feel that way. We go through our lives and we think, I'm doing good enough. I'm not doing anything really, really noticeably bad. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but neither is anybody else. I'm on the upper side of, you know, where I ought to be. So I'm doing good enough. And when we start feeling that way, we begin to see ourselves as better than the drunk down the street or the adulterer across the road. And when we get in that situation, that's very dangerous. We forget that if it were not for the grace of God, any one of us sitting in this room right now hearing this could be the next famous serial killer that people YouTube for fun to watch documentaries about a decade later. I mean that. I mean all of you sitting here, me included. If it were not for the grace of God, we're monsters. Every one of us. There is no limit to the extent of our depravity except God puts His hand in front of us and won't let us cross certain thresholds. That's true for every born-again person. That's also true for every lost person. Adolf Hitler killed six million Jews. Why didn't he kill seven? God said so. Why didn't every leader in the, in the history of the world kill millions of their own people? God said so. We are all, 
only God's grace away from being, like we said, a murderer, a kidnapper, a rapist, a thief, or anything else. And we need to remember that there's nothing good in any of us. We need to often go back and get in touch with the truth that, that we were all at one point in time the woman who washed Jesus' feet with our tears. And we were the publican who hid himself on the chest begging for forgiveness from God and unable to even look up at heaven for fear of his stare. We need to recapture the view that Paul had of himself when he wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's us right now. No, we're not good enough. And it's so easy to let ourselves think more highly of ourselves than we should and then withhold mercy from others. But how dare we do that? We have to repent of that. If that's us, if you, if you do some soul searching and you see that you've fallen into that, and I think it's so easy to fall into that, we do it without thinking about it. We have to intentionally get ourselves out of that mindset. If we're doing that, we have to repent. Jesus rebuked that attitude in the lives of the Pharisees and He's rebuking it in my life and He's rebuking it in your life right now. And thirdly, Jesus points to his own authority. He says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because these Pharisees did not think that they needed mercy, they would receive none. God always hears the sincere cry of one begging for mercy that they know they need. He always hears that prayer. Whenever we call out to God sincerely knowing we need mercy, God never shuts his ear to that. He always hears that. In his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, David wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God said to King Josiah, Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have so many promises that when we call out to God out of a sincere heart, no matter how great or how small our sin may seem, he always hears. He never shuts his ear to a broken and contrite heart. He is joyful to listen to those prayers and to answer those prayers with mercy. These Pharisees would not be forgiven because they didn't think they needed forgiveness. Jesus did not come to seek the righteous. He says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God delights in saving the lost sheep who have wandered from the flock and know they're off the path. He loves to find the lost coins who have fallen into the dirt and the darkness of sin and know they need rescuing. He opens His arm wide to every prodigal who comes to His senses and longs to come home. If you're listening to this, either in these pews or you're hearing it over the podcast, and you feel like God will not forgive you, Jesus wants you to remember who it was that He died to save. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. And God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus comes to sinners because 
Not because they are good, because He is good. Rather than condemning us, He chose to save us. Rather than leaving us in our sin, He chose to heal us of our sin. Peter wrote, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He came to take the punishment for our sin so that He could redeem us not only from the curse of the law, but like we talked about last week, from the power of sin itself in our lives. Jesus came that we might have life. He came so we could have better than the cancer of idolatry that will bring only death. He came, took our sin, died for our sin, and then rose again. And He is living today so that we might be brought back into relationship with the God of the universe whom we were created to know and none of our sin no matter how much of it it is or how filthy it is can overcome the value of his offering of his own life both on the cross and now for eternity in heaven and he offers himself continually for our sake for he always lives to make intercession for us For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. So if you've never truly felt the weight of your sin and the terrors of just how lost you really are, then the Word says to you, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. If you feel the weight of your sin tonight, if you know that you're lost and you desperately want to be saved, then I say to you not take heart. This is a great gift that you know this because God only accepts the penitent. He calls to you tonight, saying, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And if you're listening tonight and you have tasted the mercy of God, but you often find it hard to extend that mercy to others, even the worst sinner you know or know of, then repent. Your king asks this question of you and me tonight. He says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Amen? Let's pray. Father, I love you and worship you. And I pray that tonight you were glorified in this. Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified by what comes out of this, Father. Um, Lord, I just pray that someone uh, will hear this, Lord, either here or, or, or in their car, on their iPhone, whatever, Lord, and the, and the hearts that you're already um, preparing, people that you've already been convicting over their sin, people who feel the weight of how lost they really are, Lord, that they'll see Matthew, they'll see what you're telling us through Matthew's story, that, that no one is beyond uh, forgiveness, that no one is beyond Uh, coming to You and and receiving mercy when we come to You with a broken and contrite heart. We come to You knowing how lost we are and how, how we need to be saved. Jesus, thank You for being who You are. You're the only one that could save us. If we, were, if we were responsible for saving ourselves or even keeping ourselves saved after You saved us, we'd, we'd all go to hell, Lord. There's no, there's no way. None of us have it in us to be good enough at any point in this walk. We're, we're just trusting You, Lord, and we thank You right now. Um, 
as a grateful people for the fact that you decided to move in our lives. You decided to give yourself for us. You decided to take us in as part of yourself. You took responsibility for us, Lord. And right now you're holding our salvation in your hand and you won't trust it with anybody else. I want to thank you for that, Lord. We, we need you to be just who you are. We wouldn't trade you for anybody because you're perfect. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless our church. Lord, help us grow. I pray that you uh, will, will use us to go out into the highways and the hedges, you know, around the, the area that we live in, Lord. And I pray that you'd use us as, as beacons of righteousness. But I pray that you would use us to share the gospel with people that don't know you yet, Lord. People that desperately need you. God, the people that are just like us, except their heart hasn't been changed yet, God. I'm asking you to give us a tender heart. Give us a longing for the lost, Lord God. Give us a, a broken heart over people that we see every day that are just in the, the, the chains of sin and they don't even know how lost they are, God. Please stir our hearts to be a people who care what you care about. And that's to see the lost sheep of, of the Israel of God saved. I'm begging you, God, please do that in my heart, do that in all of our hearts, Lord. We love you and we praise you and we want to offer ourselves to you as, as living sacrifices in this way, Lord. We praise your name. We worship you tonight, God. Thank you for everything you've done and all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.